I am so honored and pleased to be speaking with a very, very gifted Irish novelist joining us for the next few minutes on WGTD's morning show. Her name is Roisin Meany, and she is an award-winning novelist, and uh, she has uh, lived in a number of different places, but right now lives in and is speaking to me from Limerick, Ireland. And uh, uh, newly published here in uh, the United States in paperback is her novel called Semi-Sweet, a novel of love and cupcakes. Uh, it tells really a very tender story of, of a woman who uh, opens up a shop in the, the place where she lives, and uh, it's a cupcake shop. And uh, she is trying to sort of put her life together after uh, some, some serious setbacks. And set against that are the lives of other people uh, close to her whose lives are kind of following, in, in some respects, a, 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 an opposite path. And they are confronting sort of escalating difficulties and heartaches over the course of time. It's one of the most beautifully constructed novels I have ever read. And the, the, the characters in it uh, feel so vibrant and real. And uh, I am so excited to have this opportunity to speak with the author about how she has constructed this world and the, the people that live in it, and also to talk about her, her beautiful homeland and its rich culture. Uh, Roisin Meany, the author of Semi-Sweet, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you very much, Greg. I'm absolutely delighted to have a chance to talk to you. I wonder if we could maybe begin by talking just a bit about uh, Ireland, where you uh, grew up and where you now live, and uh, maybe tell us a little bit about, just in general, the cultural landscape of Ireland and uh, the importance of of the written word and uh, how it was important to you, I am presuming, uh, even as you grew up there. Certainly, Greg, yeah. Well, as I suppose most people know, Ireland does have a very rich literary tradition, um, especially uh, bearing in mind that there are only about four and a half million Irish people, um, that is, who were born in Ireland at any given time. Um, yeah, I mean, the Irish novel in particular and poetry, I suppose, have travelled throughout the world, so I'm delighted to be associated with that. And as you say, it was very important to me growing up from the time that I could read, I suppose at the age of six or seven, um, I had my nose stuck in a book. And really, I wasn't very discerning at the start. I would read anything and everything that I could get my hands on. But I kind of gravitated then as I got older towards the novel. And um, not surprisingly, when I started writing myself then, back in 2001, I, uh, it was, to, it was uh, fiction I, I started on. And I'm still doing uh, seven books later. Mm, very good. Uh, at what particular point did this become a, a truly serious and, and more sort of professional pursuit for you? I mean, was it the encouragement of someone or some sort of breakthrough that occurred for you which led you to think, this is my life's destiny? 
Well, my, my story is a little bit unusual. I suppose I, I'd have to go back to when I was 18, many, many years ago, unfortunately. Um, I was eating my breakfast one morning and I was reading the back of the cornflakes packet because I had nothing else to read. And I noticed they were running a competition because it was the year that the Fiesta, the Ford Fiesta, was being introduced into Ireland. And to cut a very long story short, I ended up winning a car from that cornflakes box um, <laughs> because I finished the sentence, I would like to win a Ford Fiesta because... And my sentence, in case you're interested, was because my father won't let me drive his. <laughs> so I, I didn't really think too much about it. I just put it down and sent off my entry and totally forgot about it. And then a couple of months later, I heard that I had won a car. And I suppose that's where I started to think, gosh, words, you know, they have a bit of power and, you know, you can get stuff with them. So I didn't really do much about it, though, for several years later. Um, when I, I went into teaching, I became a primary teacher um, for, for several years. And in the early 90s, I decided to take a career break. And I was casting around for something different to do. And in the meantime, I had entered every competition I could find because I was totally hooked after my first lucky break. And I had had a fair amount of success. So when I was looking for something else to do, one of my cousins suggested I try getting a job in advertising as a copywriter because I liked working with words and I was able to kind of construct a clever enough sentence. So that's exactly what I did. I went into copywriting and I suppose it was there. I worked in London then um, that I first started to wonder if I could possibly write a book myself. Um, I was just writing ads at that stage, of course, in leaflets and short brochures. But I thought, well, if I can do a short thing, why can't I try a long thing? Mm. So um, in 2001, I finally um, took, the, took the plunge and I took another career break from my teaching job. And this time I went to San Francisco, where one of my brothers lived at the time. And that was where I attempted to write my first book. And um, again, I was incredibly lucky and that ended up winning a, write a bestseller competition that a new Irish publisher was, was running to launch itself. So I got my first two books published without any rejections at all, which is practically unheard of, I think, for a writer. Um, so that's when I that's when I started, I suppose, in earnest in 2001. My first book didn't actually get published until 2004. Um, but since then, I've had pretty much a book a year out. And in 2008, I finally took the plunge and gave up my teaching because I was, I was job sharing for the first few years of writing. I was um, teaching half the time and writing the other half. So since 2008, I've been a full-time writer and absolutely loving every minute of it. Mm, great. And I wonder if you could just uh, say a word about, um, first of all, where, what, where was it exactly that you were teaching? I was teaching in various cities in Ireland. Um, I started in Dublin and then I, I went to Limerick. Well, actually, just those two cities, really, but a few different schools within the cities. Mm-hmm. And, and teaching writing? No, I was an elementary school teacher, so a bit of everything. You know, in Ireland, the kids just would have the one teacher in primary school who would teach all the subjects. So, so, so you really, in a sense, had this other life quite distinct from your life as a writer then? Totally distinct from my life as a writer, yeah. It was, it was, it was a nice mix, actually, after the hecticness of the classroom, if there's such a word as hecticness. Um, I would I would then sit down for the next week in front of the piece of my computer and, and write. So it was, it was a nice mix. But in the end, I just decided I wanted to do one thing or another. I didn't really want to have two half jobs. So I chose writing. Before we begin speaking about this particular novel called Semi-Sweet, 
I wonder if you could just kind of describe for us your life as a full-time writer. I mean, for instance, over the course of, of a week, uh, from the day to the day to the day, uh, what is your life as a full-time writer like? I mean, how much of the time are you writing and in what way? Well, I suppose that depends on where I am at any particular book. Um, generally, it takes about eight or nine months to get the first draft of one of my novels down. So if I'm at the start of that and if I'm plotting and planning it, I'll spend, I suppose, about five or six hours a day working on the on the plot. And I like to have a fairly, fairly um, co- constructed plot before I start. Of course, having said that, it could go anyway. Um, so then once I start writing, I try to be disciplined. I don't always succeed, but I would, I would generally sit down in front of the computer at kind of nine or ten in the morning, and I try to stay there uh, sometimes two or three, two or, until two or three in the afternoon. It might not sound like a lot, but it's very intensive, I find. And after that, I really can't write anymore. I think my brain has gone a bit frazzled, so I have to, I have to go and do something different. But I, I tend to... Um, I tend to be quite disciplined when I am sitting down writing, and I do tend to um, get, you know, my target word count done each day, which would be, I'd, I'd aim for kind of between two and 4,000 words a day. Um, and my books would be about 100,000 words, or 110,000 words, maybe. Um, so, you know, with, with little days off every now and again, of course, and, and weekends off, I mean, I am nice to myself. Um, I, I'd get a book written comfortably in, in you know, eight to nine months. Mm-hmm. And would these earlier novels uh, closely resemble the novel that we're about to talk about, Semi-Sweet, or over the course of these last few years, uh, has your writing uh, dramatically changed or evolved? I wouldn't say there's been a dramatic change. My very first book, The Daisy Picker, was probably my own story. I might not have realized it at the time. I didn't realize it at the time. But my main character had so much in common with me um, that my mother immediately said, oh, she's you. And when she said that, I realized that, yeah, she probably was me. Um, And in the, the first book, there were only maybe about five main characters or five characters who featured in any great extent in the book. Um, the only change I would say that has that has happened since then with all my books that have come after that is my character list has been steadily increasing. Um, so now I can't seem to write a book without having several characters whose lives all um, they, they, they intersect in some way. They might be related or they might just know each other or they might be acquainted. Um, and that's why I tend to set my books in small towns in Ireland or smallish towns. I generally make up the towns, but they'd be, you know, small town Ireland so that there would be a good chance that, you know, people would know of each other if they don't know each other. And I enjoy writing books like, writing stories like that, where lives are woven through other lives and people affect other people without maybe realizing it half the time. So, um, yeah, I think I basically write the same kind of book as I've written at the start, and they're all set in present-day Ireland as well, and they're very Irish in their flavor, I think. I deliberately, you know, I use Irish idioms and conversations, and, and I... I I try and, you know, I, I, don't, I don't dilute the Irishness of the story because I figure if it's set in Ireland, then it should, it should reek of Irishness. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I want to say that about the novel we, we talk about today, Semi-Sweet, uh, I really deeply appreciated that and, and was kind of surprised because I'm, I'm actually, because I do so much reading as part of this job, um, I, I don't generally speaking, want my reading, especially pleasure reading, 
to be hard work. <laughs> and so yeah. so if if I am reading a, a a book where I have to sort of do a lot of sort of translating as I go and trying to figure out well what in the world is this uh, what is she talking about here? Um, I I am I'm not apt to enjoy that very much and uh, I found uh, the Irishness of of this novel to not be a barrier at all. I mean, I suppose it it, it helps that uh, the language is so close to our own, and uh, and it isn't an utterly uh, foreign place uh, like like some places might be. Yeah, sure, and and of course. Having said, you know, that I like my novels to be as Irish as I can, it, it, the semi-suite did go through an American copy editor. Um, so there were things that I was asked to change purely because they would be fairly incomprehensible to a, a non-Irish reader. But, but I tried to keep the essence of the Irishness, and I'm glad to hear that it didn't put you off. Um, and also that you were able to keep track of the myriad of characters who float in and out of the pages. Very much. I enjoyed it thoroughly. For those <laughs> of you just joining us, I am speaking with Irish novelist uh, Roisin Meany, who uh, uh, is uh, joining me on the morning show more specifically now to talk about her novel called Semi-Sweet, a novel of love and cupcakes. And um, as Roisin Meany was has just explaining, this novel, like her earlier novels, uh, uh, presents a, uh, an array of, of different characters whose lives in uh, sometimes uh, surprising and intriguing ways uh, are all connected. Um, Roisin Meany, tell us a little bit about uh, the just the genesis of, of this particular novel. Uh, what was the first spark or the first idea upon which the the entire novel took shape? Well, Greg, I'd have to say it is my own love of baking. And I've already said that in my first book, it was pretty much my story I told. I think there's a bit of me in every main character in every book that I write. So Hannah Robinson, the main person in Semi-Sweet, to a large extent, she's 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 me, really. It sounds very ego- egotistical of me, doesn't it? But um, I absolutely adore baking myself. So that was definitely the spark. Um, in all of my books, though, I have somebody, I have, I put in a character who either loves baking or has trouble baking and has to go to classes or, you know, has some some connection with food and baking because I just love writing about food so much. So that was where I started with Semi Sweet. I just decided to totally indulge my love of baking and, and have somebody opening up a cupcake shop. And the rest just kind of fell into place after that. Mm. Um, was a huge fan of cupcakes. I, <laughs> I that that's <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, and and I, I suppose it's kind of embarrassing for me to even admit this, but uh, because I mostly do nonfiction on this program, and and even as a pleasure reader, I I really don't read novels very much. Uh, I I have to admit that if I hadn't seen the word cupcakes on the cover <laughs> uh, and the and the beautiful picture of the window of this cupcake shop. Um, uh, I, I I don't know for certain that I would have investigated further. So that was a draw for me, and uh, I suspect maybe for others as as well who might otherwise pass by such a novel for one reason or another. The main character who opens this cupcake shop, Cupcakes on the Corner, is Hannah Robinson. She is a very, very intriguing character. Tell our listeners more about her. Right. Well, Hannah is in her 30s, early 30s. And she's been going out with Patrick for a number of years, about two years when the story opens, um, when he drops his bombshell. 
um, just about a week before Hannah is due to open her very first cupcake shop, something she's been dreaming about for years and has finally decided to, you know, take the plunge with. So she's um, she she's at a very difficult stage in her life, I suppose, because she's trying to get her shop up and running, which is no mean feat, um, and, and also trying to get over her heartbreak about Patrick's um, deception. So, um, yeah, she. I, I suppose that I, I always... Um, my main character is, is somebody that I always like to, to give a big challenge to. So, so Hannah has a double challenge, if you like, at the start of the book. And I suppose I, I just try and um, develop her character and, 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 and hopefully um, you know, the, show that she becomes stronger by, by, by facing up to the challenges and, and, um, and moving on, which she does. Um, mm. Yeah, so so yeah, I always kind of like my main characters. Mm. <laughs> I hope the readers do too. <laughs> oh, I I, uh, I adore Hannah Robinson. Oh, good. Uh, one of the things that I think you do such a good job of is um, taking us inside um, her fears, her vulnerabilities, and particularly uh, at that point in time um, where she essentially uh, is alone. For one, for one, uh, one moment, for instance, um, as she is uh, getting getting ready for bed after uh, an arduous day of of getting prepared, um, you write she dre- undressed quickly. This was the worst time going to bed by herself, and waking up alone came a close second. Maybe she should get a cat or maybe a small dog that would curl up at the end of the bed and help her feel less unwanted. Um, in a very few words, you really, in a sense, give voice to this aching loneliness that is a part of Hannah's life at this point. I wonder if you can talk maybe further about uh, your ability to to touch on that so authentically. Well, yeah, I suppose, Greg, um, that is a, that is uh, coming from me, myself too, because. I've been alone a lot in my life. Um, I'm not married at the moment. Uh, well, I have, never have been, um, and I don't have kids. Um, I've I've had relationships that have gone belly up, just like Hannah's did. So I suppose it wasn't that hard for me to write about that because you know I have felt exactly like that myself at times. Um, that probably came straight from the heart. So I'm glad it kind of worked and and didn't sound very schmaltzy. <laughs> no, not at, not at all. Good. Um, you you give uh, Hannah Robinson. Uh, very interesting parents, Geraldine and Stephen. And um, one of the things I especially like about her mother, Geraldine, is that it seems to me that she is a very strong, potent character who, uh, on the one hand, probably interferes in her daughter's life too much. Someone else might call her overbearing, but someone else might really appreciate the fervency with which she loves Hannah and her willingness to step in and help her however she can. I mean, uh, I feel like you have really blended different strands together in that particular character. So often a character like that is drawn almost cartoonishly uh, in a way that uh, you really avoid here, I think. 
Oh, good. I'm glad. I'm glad you, you think that, Greg, because that's exactly what I try to do with all my characters. I try and have the dichotomy that's in all of us, I suppose. You know, there are some good bits of us and some bad bits. And, and, and um, yeah, in Geraldine particularly, yeah, you, sometimes you do feel like strangling her and telling her to butt out of Hannah's life. But, but I did try and show that, that really her motives were good and she, she really came to the fore sometimes just when Hannah needed her most. So I'm glad that came across. Um, I, I wouldn't like to think that any of the characters were, were uh, you know, one-dimensional. Um, I try and put good and bad in every character, including Hannah, you know, sure. she's not without her faults, too. Yes, it just seems like uh, in, in this particular case, I think it's especially praiseworthy because we so often see the character of the kind of overbearing, irritating mother portrayed exactly that way. And uh, with not enough attention to sort of the lighter side or brighter side of that kind of personality type, and of course sometimes in 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 our lives they they can go way too far, and there isn't much silver lining. But I think in most cases the somewhat intrusive mother is doing it out of love, and uh, there there's an intriguing mix there of good and bad of of, of uh, yeah. commendable and not so commendable uh impulses and uh, again i just uh, especially appreciate the complexity of geraldine because so often that mother character might not be presented with that kind of richness right and i, I suppose i should give credit to my own mother too here because you know, I've been blessed with both my parents, who, thank God, are still alive and well, um, 84 and 82, respectively, my father and my mother. Um, and, and I suppose there was a lot of my own mother in Geraldine, because Mam really, she, she's always done her very, very best for all her kids. And um, I know that I can depend on her come hell or high water, you know. So I suppose that did influence my, my, um, my depiction of Geraldine. There's also an intriguing... Um uh, marriage uh, in the story of Geraldine and her husband Stephen, that they they seem to be in some respects two very different people, and yet it is a marriage that works surprisingly well. And so often uh, uh, our life partners can be sometimes uh, as much connected to us in our differences as in our similarities. Absolutely, and again, I'd look towards my own parents. There, I mean, you could not find two people more different. My father is the quiet one. My mother <laughs> never stops talking. Um, and she's, I would say she's got the stronger character of both of them. Um, but, I mean, they're both fantastic people. But, yeah, they're, they're so opposite, and, and they're together 50-odd years later. So I suppose, again, I was probably modeling Stephen and Geraldine a little on them, although Stephen is very different to my own father, hmm. having said that. Also in Hannah Robinson's life, again, this is the central character who, as the novel opens, is uh, about to take this big step after just working in a bakery for many, many years to opening her own cupcake shop. Uh, someone who figures incredibly prominently is her good friend, Adam. Um, tell us a bit about Adam and about the really intriguing friendship between Hannah and Adam. Yes, I like the idea of a male and a female having a totally platonic friendship where I suppose I wanted the reader to always wonder a little if um, it was ever going to change from something platonic. So I, I tried to um, keep, a, I suppose, a little bit of uncertainty maybe about their relationship. Um, and, and also I wanted Adam to emerge as a person in his own right and not just Hannah's best friend. 
So that's why I devoted quite a lot of uh, the story to his his um, his own relationship and his efforts with Vivian, the very timid musician. Um, so yeah, I I just I like the idea of male female platonic friendship where it it doesn't always have to end up with them falling into each other's arms. <laughs> Absolutely, and of course we we read of this uh, friend so devoted to Hannah and uh, the the enormous difference that he makes in her life, particularly at this uh, rocky point of of transition uh, in her life. Uh, I mean, that's just inspiring to read of a, of, a, of a friendship making such a deep difference in someone else's life. Yes, um, I suppose everyone would hope to have a friend like Adam. And, and again, I'm blessed with, I, don't, I w- wouldn't say that I have a male friend like that, but I have lots of female friends on whom I know I could depend my life, you know. So I suppose he was, he was her rock, especially, as you say, when she needed him the most. Hmm. I, I want us to talk for a moment about this cupcake shop and uh, the way in which you sort of constructed it and wrote about the fears that were uh, involved in uh, in Hannah uh, opening this. Uh, would you mind if I just read a paragraph or two and then have you kind of take it over from there? I'd be delighted. Great. Yeah. So, um, uh, last November, a little corner unit on the main street had become vacant, the rent not too horrendous thanks to the recession. After dithering for a few weeks, she'd finally taken the plunge and signed the lease and told Joseph Finnegan she'd be leaving at the end of the year. I assume he's the owner of the bakery where she's worked. She'd invested in a stove that took up twice the space of the old one, forcing a complete reshuffle of her other kitchen appliances, during which the tumble dryer had migrated to the shed, and she'd bought the frighteningly expensive stand mixer along with the thousand other bits and pieces she hadn't realized she'd need. Adam and his cousins had rallied, and the little shop had gradually been scrubbed and sanded, painted and fitted with display cases and shelves. And last week a man had painted Cupcakes on the Corner in bright blue letters on the yellow strip of wall above the front window. The shop was tiny, not much room for more than three customers at a time. But there was space around the back to pull up with a van. Adam had set up a website and designed stationery and printed off leaflets that they'd pushed through mail slots, stuck on telephone poles and supermarket notice boards, and slipped under car window screen wipers. And a, and a week before Christmas, Hannah's kitchen had been visited by a health inspector and deemed a suitable place in which to produce the cupcakes. So everything was set. She was poised at last to make her dream come true. And the one person she wanted by her side had just left. She reached out in the darkness and found her phone on the bedside table. She opened a new text message and inserted Patrick's name on the recipient line, then typed, I miss you. She held her thumb above send and slowly moved it across to press exit. Save message, the phone asked. No, she replied with her thumb, and the words vanished. She replaced her phone, closed her eyes, and forced herself to begin measuring flour, sugar, and butter. For some reason, mental baking usually sent her right to sleep. I just love the uh, the way in which we have mingled there uh, the excitement and the fear that is part of this exploit and the fact that something, or should we say someone, is missing in the mix. Um, Tell us more about that kind of mix and how so often 
uh, life's important moments can sometimes be that for us. Well, yeah, I suppose in the same way that when we were talking about Geraldine a little while ago, um, you know, there's always a mix in a person's makeup and character. Um, is there ever a time when we're truly happy or truly sad? I think we always feel a mixture of emotions, and Hannah um, shows this perfectly when she she's trying to be so excited about the shop, but there all the time is this, this horrible loneliness and, and emptiness because Patrick isn't there to share it. Um, yeah, uh, I, again, like I just always try and have the mix there so that readers can believe in, in what's happening and what people are feeling because that's probably what we feel ourselves. Hmm. And, mm. and I think it is the morning that her shop is about to open. You, you begin one section this way. 144, 12 trays of 12. Were 144 cupcakes enough for one day? There was no way of knowing. What if she'd made too many chocolate orange and not enough lemon lime? What if everyone wanted vanilla coconut and no one looked at the mocha? What if people hated the cream cheese icing and only went for the ones topped with buttercream? Was Klongarvin ready for mascarpone frosting? <laughs> it's not big in Ireland. <laughs> and, and, and one realized, I mean, it, it sort of helps us understand how, I mean, not just when you're a one single woman, doing something for the first time but but for anybody who really launches any kind of a business there are a, a limitless number of of questions and and all kinds of potential possibilities for success versus failure turning on all kinds of choices that are made uh i just thought you did a beautiful job of putting us into the shoes of this brand new small entrepreneur uh, is that any kind of real-life experience from which you could draw, or are you just very good at imagining such things? Oh, thanks, Greg. Um, well, I suppose I deliberately didn't do a lot of research into opening a new business because I wanted Hannah not to have done that herself. I wanted her to be a little bit reckless, I suppose, and, and a bit foolhardy, if you like, um, in, in just throwing herself into this without knowing a lot of the ins and outs. And I wanted her to make mistakes and to make too many cupcakes of one flavor and not enough of another. And, you know, later on in the book, then there's a, there's a section where she's, she's musing about how she's learning as she's going along. And, um, yeah, so, so, um, I, I, yeah, I kind of deliberately did all that. It's not really based on fact. I've never really done anything like that, although I would love if I wasn't a writer, that would be my next choice, I think. Um, opening my own little bakery shop it would be absolutely fabulous. So again, that was me, um, you know, just wondering aloud how I'd cope um, and making all the cupcakes in the, in the early hours of the morning as well. It was uh, something I wouldn't relish doing myself, I have to say, because mm -hmm. I like my bed. <laughs> but um, yeah, again, I just wanted her to be totally, you know, at sea for the first few weeks, which wouldn't help her her, uh, you know, her heartbreak as well, you know, which, which uh, I, I wanted her to, to, to really have to struggle, I suppose. Hmm. We are speaking with Irish novelist uh, Roisin Meany, and we're talking about her novel called Semi-Sweet, a novel of love and cupcakes, published now in paperback uh, here in the United States after first being published, I presume, uh, in Ireland. Uh, we've talked a lot about Patrick, and we actually haven't said a whole lot about uh, this very charismatic figure who uh, had been an important part of uh, Hannah's life, uh, but, uh, but then strays, shall we say. Um, tell us more about, uh, maybe, maybe a word about what it's like to 
formulate the uh, the so-called handsome stranger kind of figure uh, <laughs> in a novel, and and maybe just a, a word or two about the kind of choices that uh, an author gets to make uh, in, in, in formulating this particular kind of character. Right. Um, yes, I, I was a little bit wary of Patrick. Um, I wanted him to be good-looking and charming, but again, I didn't want him to be very one-dimensional and, you know, this, this love rat that you love to hate. So I did try and, and get another dimension into him. But um, I suppose he is probably the... Probably, he was probably the most tricky character for me to, to handle in the book. Um, I, I, yeah, I have met Patricks in my time. I've definitely met them and, and lived to tell the sorry tale. Um, and, and I think a lot of women can identify with, with the charm of, of Patrick, you know, and, and not being able to resist it. And even when Hannah meets him, she, she wonders why he's interested in her. Hannah is not particularly good looking. She doesn't have a perfect figure. Um, she's she's what you would regard as a kind of a normal, healthy woman, but you know she she wouldn't be the type she thinks that Patrick would normally go for. And she's seen his photo in the society pages of the local paper because he just happens to be the editor, and he's always or he's usually accompanied by a leggy blonde, you know, on his arm and that. And she's so not like that that she does wonder, but she just can't resist his charm, and she she falls for him, and 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 um, and lives to regret it. But um, I I. Yeah, making up, um, you know, nice male characters like that, or rather desirable male characters, whatever about nice. Um, it's always fun. It's always fun creating a man. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, if I can just go back briefly to The Daisy Picker, my very first novel, I, I had not intended that to be a love story at all. Um, my main character there, Lizzie O'Grady, was not meant to fall in love. And in my very uh, intricate plot that I had spent ages working out, um, she ended up alone. But but despite my best efforts, she met Joe, Joe McCarthy, and Joe was lovely. And I really couldn't, I couldn't fault her for falling for him because I would have fallen for him myself. Uh. So, um, yeah, she, despite my best efforts, she, she ended up uh, falling in love and, and they did live happily ever after, I'm glad to report. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's always fun, fun writing about love and men. <laughs> <laughs> well, and... And of course, I think you also write very persuasively about the uneasy relationship between Patrick and uh, the next woman after Hannah, Leah yeah, Bradshaw, yeah. and the fact that um, so often, again, in uh, at least in America media, let's say on television and in film, that so often uh, those kind of uh, clandestine sort of relationships are. Uh, portrayed as being exciting and and done without much much sense of regret or or, or fear for that matter and uh, and and I feel like th- th- there's a very complicated tangle of emotions and feelings at play in in this relationship yes um Leah would be more a Patrick's type I suppose I was trying to make her she's prettier than Hannah she's she's blonde and she's petite and slim and she's all the things that Hannah kind of wishes she was, uh, not too seriously, but, you know, if she if she could choose her figure and her hair and whatever, she probably would go for something like Leah, that, who, to whom men are usually attracted. Um, but, yeah, again, I, I didn't want it to be just, you know, a, a kind of a, a Leah, his bit on the side, and then, you know, it all kind of uh, is hot and steamy and that. Um, I, I wanted it to be like a real relationship, um, 
And of course, when Leah, you know, drops her bombshell on, on Patrick and, and tells him that she's pregnant, um, that, that moves their relationship to a, a whole different level straight away. And this is why he's leaving Hannah. Um, he, now, to give Patrick his due, um, to be fair to him, he didn't intend <laughs> Leah to become pregnant, although I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing from his point of view. But um, yeah, um, I've lost the thread of my thought now. Well, you're yeah. you're just kind of talking about the complexity, I think, of 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 their feelings for one another, and yes. uh, and the fact that he is not a complete vil- villain nor a complete knight in shining armor here. No, I, I tried not to make him a complete villain, and and Leah as well. Um, Leah does feel guilty about about taking him away from Hannah, and and she didn't go lightly into the relationship. Really, um, it was Patrick who pursued her. Um, so I tried not to make her the total scarlet woman either. So yeah, I, I just try and get try. I try to get those intricacies into any relationship that I have in my stories, and you can imagine the fun I have with my my huge cast of characters oh. <laughs> trying to keep them all, uh, all the, all the characters spinning in the air and and working. Oh, absolutely, and and I, I should say that's something I f- I find very impressive and and maybe even remarkable, is the fact that we have all of these characters and yet we have no sense that, that any of them are neglected. I mean, that we don't have characters that suddenly appear and then we, they vanish for 50 pages and, and we're kind of left to just kind of wonder what's happening with them. I mean, somehow you've, you've achieved a very, a very impressive balance here of lots and lots of characters, lots going on in all of their lives, and yet in a way that somehow doesn't overwhelm us. Is that where maybe the editor of a book is helpful to you as the author in achieving that kind of balance uh, with the reader in mind? Yes. Occasionally when I hand my my, uh, long-suffering editor, Kira, she's been with me for the last four novels, when I hand her a first draft, a, a, a common comment that she will come back to me with is, we need to see more of this character, or we need, you know, um, she needs to come in a little bit more often because I think we're losing her story. So, yeah, sometimes I suppose I can neglect some of, some characters, um, but, but Kira would keep me on track with that. Um, mm. Yeah, it's, it's no mean feat to, to keep them all going, and I do um, inevitably, I suppose, neglect some for for the more, who I would regard as the more main characters. But um, yeah, hopefully by the end of all the drafts, I've, I've kind of got the balance sort of right. <laughs> One thing I especially appreciate, you, you've touched on it briefly, is how Hannah Robinson's good friend Adam, her platonic friend, uh, ends up becoming very interested in, intrigued by uh, a young musician uh, there in the town of, and how do I pronounce this? Clon uh, Garvin. Yeah. Uh, if I may, I want to just read uh, your description of one of the first times he lays eyes on this uh, musician whom he uh, eventually learns, I think, is named, uh, is it Vivian? Vivian, yes. yeah. So, um, so this is Adam uh, at uh, visiting a vintage Clon Garvin's first wine bar. Um, So, in the meantime, he was content to drink his Guinness, thankfully the stock wasn't limited to wine, and watch the woman who'd caught his attention pretty much as soon as he'd walked in. She was the only female member of the group of four musicians performing on the small, slightly raised area, you could hardly call it a stage, in a corner of the room diagonally across from where he sat. It wasn't that she was beautiful, no, he really couldn't call her that, 
There was certainly something striking about the neat, pointed features, but she wasn't beautiful. Her hair, some pale color he couldn't determine, was pulled off her face by a wide black hairband and captured in some kind of low ponytail. No tendril escaped, so there was nothing to suggest the length of the texture of it. Her eyes were hidden behind a pair of small, round, dark-rimmed glasses. From this distance he couldn't be sure, but he thought her hands were broad, the knuckles jutting sharply from her splayed fingers as they traveled over the keys of her instrument, which from Adam's very limited knowledge of musical instruments appeared to be a clarinet. She was dressed entirely in black. A high-necked blouse fell in sharp pleats to her waist, where it was gathered into a wide belt made of some shiny material. A long, loose skirt stopped just short of her ankles, meeting a pair of black boots with pointed toes. The whole of her body was covered, apart from her hands and face. There was no clue to the shape that lay beneath the stiff folds of her top or the drapes below. Not beautiful, no. Not in the least pretty unsmiling, wholly focused on the music they played. She sat hunched in her seat, her chair set back a fraction from her companions, giving the suggestion that she was trying to distance herself from the whole affair. And yet, Adam watched her. What drew him to examine that frowning face, to wonder what color the eyes were behind their glass barriers, to imagine undoing the ponytail, peeling off the black hairband, and watching the pale hair tumble downward. It is so interesting to think about uh, the surprising ways in which we find ourselves drawn to someone in the way that, Pat, uh, that Adam is drawn to this woman he eventually meets uh, named Vivian. Tell us more about this uh, unlikely attraction and uh, and maybe a, a bit of why it, it fits so well into who the character of Adam is. Right. Well, I wanted Vivian to be not at all what you would expect a man to go for. Um, she, as, as you said there, she's not attractive, really, in, in any sense. And she doesn't give the impression that she's even enjoying herself up on the stage, although she is a very driven musician and um, absolutely loves music and loses herself in it. But, but she, there's no charisma about her. There's nothing, really, that, that could attract him. So I suppose the reader would be wondering, why on earth? What does he see in her? And, and again, as, as, as their relationship developed super slowly because she's pathologically almost shy um hopefully i i'm able to um give give enough of her character that you can see oh yeah yeah there is something in her all right that yeah um i could see why um why he wants to get to know her and why he's drawn to her um but it does take a long time um i suppose i just wanted it to be a bit of an offbeat relationship and not not very predictable or conventional um, like, like I suppose, again, in real life, you know, a lot of relationships, you'd kind of wonder, God, why are they together? Or what does he see in her or vice versa? Right. So I suppose this was one of those. And of course, because Hannah and Adam, in a sense, have a, a somewhat unconventional friendship. Uh, it, it, it's uh, not, not that much of a surprise then that when it should come to uh, Adam becoming romantically drawn to someone, that it would also be some someone or in a way uh something out of the ordinary 
Yes, that didn't strike me, but you're quite right. Yeah. Mm. Um, like we said, Hannah is no oil painting herself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> God, that sounds very cruel, doesn't it? And I, I, I have to admit that I'm no oil painting myself either. So I identify with these women to whom men aren't magically drawn, you know. Uh. So, um, yeah, so I suppose Adam, Adam is, is one of these men who can see beneath the surface and, you know, see, right. see the lovely personalities underneath. <laughs> By the way, into the mix, of course, eventually comes Adam's very worldly sister, Nora, who has been uh, here and there and lived a very, very cosmopolitan life. And when she comes back to Clungarvan, uh, she sets all kinds of events in motion. But... Um, Two other characters that we need to uh, at least touch on briefly are good friends of Geraldine and Stephen. Now, they are the parents of Hannah Robinson, and uh, Geraldine's uh, dear friend is Alice. And uh, Alice and Tom, I don't know how much of this you want to say, um, suffer at one point uh, in the book what amounts to sort of a catastrophic personal reversal. And uh, so much of the book is about uh, kind of a, 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 a terrible, sad deterioration of their fortunes, even as Hannah Robinson uh, finds her, her pathway on, a, on a, an inspiring ascent. Just speak a moment about this fascinating contrast that you've drawn in the book. Yes. Um, yeah, thank you for not giving all the story away, um, because, yeah, I think that that's a bit of a shock in the middle of the book, what happens there. Um, well, I suppose the, the subject of alcoholism would be fairly common in Irish literature. Um, and I suppose the, the fact that we Irish love a drink is, is something that's very well known as well as a nation. Like it's one of the things that we're associated with, for better or worse. Um, but, um, yeah, so I wanted to explore a bit of how alcohol can, um, before anything happens, really, you know, before the cataclysmic event happens, how alcohol can affect a relationship. And we can see Alice's growing anxiety when she realizes that Tom's dependency on drink is, is becoming more and more, you know, and... Um, and and she's she's almost um, engineering ways of of not having him um in 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 the company of alcohol if you like um so and then when the big thing happens um you know it, it just takes over their whole lives um and um yeah i, I it's interesting i suppose to write about as much, it's as much, it's as interesting to write about the deterioration of a relationship as it is to write about the opposite about the start of a relationship um so um but not not the complete deterioration because there is love there and and the, there's the struggle again that this dichotomy that i'm always chasing of um how to save a relationship when when you know events conspire to destroy it um, and and I yeah I found that very satisfying to write about their struggle Alice's and Tom's struggle Alice's more so I suppose in a way than Tom's um, to try and save their relationship right I think because what is so interesting is that the the disaster is really Tom's it is something mm. that Tom has done uh, and and yet Alice as his life partner even at, in that period where there is some estrangement over it this is still something that has happened to both of them it is a pain that both of them have to bear and that's of course also uh, a harsh reality in in these kind of situations yeah absolutely um 
like in any family where there is an alcoholic, the the other family members suffer as much, if not more so, I think, than the alcoholic themselves. And I'd say it's very few Irish families that are unaffected by this this um, phenomenon. Uh, ultimately, the uh, the the novel lives up beautifully uh, to this title of semi sweet that we are. Uh, experiencing both sides of of human life uh, so richly. The novel, again, called Semi-Sweet, a novel of love and cupcakes, now available in paperback from the publisher Five Spot and the author, uh, Roisin Meany. Roisin Meany, I've thoroughly enjoyed this chance to speak with you, to meet you, and to talk further about your beautifully crafted novel, and I look forward to the next thing that uh, issues from your pen. And thank you so much for joining us today on The Morning Show. Thank you very much, Greg. I've really enjoyed our chat.